All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of the morning from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, the morning that I happen to be ranting on is that of um, October 2nd, which means that we're actually now two days past uh, a date which means something to me. It probably doesn't mean a lot to other people, but um, I need to make note of it and sort of take stock of things here. Uh, September 30th, which marked exactly 20 years since I launched the project, which is now Counter Vortex, which has largely consumed my life in the uh, in the intervening 20 years. I kind of look back and I'm like, whoa, what happened? 20 years? Yeah, 20 years. So just, I mean, and there really is a sense of a... Um, of a cycle coming around here because I, I uh, launched it in response to 9-11, directly in response to 9-11, which, you know, I witnessed and and lived through here uh, in lower Manhattan. I mean, I wasn't down at ground zero, at least for several days after that. But on, on that day, on that fateful day, I was up here on the Lower East Side and saw the whole thing and had to breathe the toxic air for uh, days thereafter, weeks thereafter. Very spooky feeling. <clears throat> and the, you know, paroxysm of bellicosity, which immediately followed 9-11, uh, you know, really gave me a, a sense of political urgency. And I felt the need to uh, document and have an ongoing commentary on events, which is why I originally launched the very first issue. Back then, I was actually producing issues. It started as a weekly emailing before I even had a website. It started as a weekly emailing just to my friends, which I was calling at the time World War III Report. Taking a tip from uh, from somebody who I don't really like very much, <clears throat> Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, who two days after the 9-11 attacks wrote, does my country really understand that this is World War III? And if this attack was the Pearl Harbor of World War III, it means there is a long, long war ahead, quote, unquote. Well, he was certainly right about there being a long war ahead, wasn't he? But some people have taken issue with the whole notion of uh, what happened, uh, you know, immediately after 9-11 being the start of World War III. We'll talk more about the nomenclature later. I just wanted to, uh, I went back and took a look at that very first issue I produced after I'd been producing it as an emailing to my friends uh, that I was sending out once a week starting September 30th, 2001. You know, I was attempting to, uh, you know, document events as, as they unfolded and um, bring to light underreported stories related to the general theme of the GWAT, the Global War on Terrorism, find people in the countries which were going to be in the target of U.S. imperialism who we could support and loan solidarity to, and uh, to be an ombudsman, so to speak, to actually, uh, you know, pay close attention to the... Um, to the coverage, both mainstream and alternative media coverage, with a uh, you know a critical eye for um, distortion, propaganda, and just outright error, and all of that was right in that very first issue back in um, September 30th, 2001, and the uh, immediate following 
few issues of what began as a, uh, a weekly emailing. In addition to, uh, you know, looking at what was going on in, uh, in Afghanistan and the war preparations, I also uh, took a look at um, Latin America. Terrorist paranoia hits Mexico. Terrorist paranoia hits Colombia, where, you know, the governments of those countries sort of exploited the uh, propaganda environment created by the 9-11 attacks to suddenly declare guerrilla groups to be terrorists now, sort of adopting that nomenclature, and hyping all of this paranoia about how, uh, you know, Islamist militants were um, collaborating with the FARC in Colombia and stuff like that. Uh, I also uh, noted the good work of a group which is still around and I'm still supporting today, RAWA, the Revolutionary Organization of the Women of Afghanistan, militantly feminist and secularist group which opposed uh, the Taliban, the warlords which opposed the Taliban, <laughs> opposed them as well, and opposed the Russian military occupation and then the American military occupation, etc. You know, opposed everybody. Had all the right enemies, so to speak, <clears throat> and uh, under Taliban rule, they had actually been like running underground schools for girls who, you know, were officially denied education under Taliban rule that last time around. And we're going to see, unfortunately, we're going to see how bad it's going to get this time around. But uh, the uh, Rawa was doing really heroic work and continues to be a very important voice, which I'm still uh, monitoring today. And then, you know, later, a couple of years later, when the uh, U.S. invaded and occupied Iraq, again under the rubric of the GWAT, Global War on Terrorism, you know, I, I was uh, trying to raise awareness about the uh, secular and progressive anti-imperialist resistance in Iraq, groups such as the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq, ALFI, which, again, was opposing the U.S. occupation as a civil, as opposed to armed opposition or civil resistance, but also opposing the uh, <clears throat> jihadi insurgents, which since then have morphed into ISIS. And then in terms of, you know, ombudsman activities, right there in that very first issue, September 30th, 2001, I uh, had to call out a distortion by, uh, you know, veteran Los Angeles Times journalist Robert Shear, who has since become something of a... Uh, an icon of the left and a personal nemesis of mine for his bad politics. But back then, uh, I wasn't really aware of how bad his politics are. Or maybe they actually got worse in the intervening years. Uh, but uh, you know, he had this piece which was going around at that time, claiming that the, uh, that the U.S. had given $43 million in drug war aid to the Taliban, which was simply not true. I actually, you know, dug up the, uh, you know, less opinionated and, and more distant sources, you know, the wire services and so on, and um, tried to parse what was going on. And it turned out that the, uh, you know, uh, $43 million in um, aid to Afghanistan was not going to the Taliban regime. And it was not all drug war aid. That which was drug war aid wasn't guns and so on for the Taliban. It was money for crop substitution programs to try to wean the, uh, you know, the farmers off of opium and onto, you know, sorghum or whatever. Uh, and uh, the rest of it was, and that was only a minority, only some $10 million of the, of the aid package. And the rest of it was for drought relief. And all of it, quite significantly, both the crop substitution aid and the drought relief aid, 
was, uh, you know, was completely bypassing the, the Taliban regime. It was uh, going through um, NGOs, non-governmental organizations that were working on the ground in Afghanistan at the tolerance of the Taliban. So a completely distorted report from Robert Shear, which I had to uh, to call out right there in that very first issue. And, you know, unfortunately, that is, you know, taken up more and more of my time and energy in the intervening years is, you know, calling out the bad reportage that everybody else is reading. And it's felt, you know, more and more, you know, of a chaotic losing battle <laughs> as the years have passed. Because, you know, the, the reportage really just gets worse and worse. The sloppiness gets worse. And, you know, the bad politics of, you know, the left establishment in this country has also gotten worse. And I've become more and more of, you know, a, a dissident from the American left. But all of this work, which has consumed my life for the past 40 years, you know, it was all right there encapsulated in that very first issue of uh, World War, what I was then calling World War Three Report, September 30 of 2001. All archived on the website, all archived on the website, which is now countervortex.org. Now, the idea to turn it into a website was not actually mine. A few weeks into the project, one of the uh, the people who was on my email list and was receiving my, you know, little newsletter that I was writing up every week, uh, without consulting me first, went ahead and, um, and started, uh, you know, launched a website and started slapping my... Uh, my weekly newsletters, as I was calling them at the time, started slapping them up onto the web and then, uh, you know, unveiled it and said, hey, I created your website. <laughs> that was David Bloom, who was actually done some, uh, still a good, good buddy of mine today, and he actually did some, uh, some very good journalism later. He sort of, sort of became uh, the project's resident um, expert on Palestine and actually traveled to the West Bank, and did some very good first-hand reportage about uh, the land recovery struggles of the Palestinians, whose, uh, you know, um, traditional lands where they've been growing olives for centuries are now, you know, being enclosed behind the apartheid wall. In any event, uh, you know, he's the one to blame for the existence of um, <laughs> of this project, the existence of what is now Counter Vortex. He's the one who actually went ahead and turned it into a website. The next big change came in 2005 when um, I abandoned the emailing and turned it into more of a, you know, traditional blog, which I was, you know, updating every day. And the uh, area of coverage also began to expand as I got more and more obsessed. By this time, of course, uh, the U.S. was at war, not only in Afghanistan, but in Iraq as well. And I continued to make... Um, Latin America, a big area of focus, because that's kind of my traditional area of expertise. Speak Spanish, don't speak Arabic, don't speak any of the languages spoken in Afghanistan. <clears throat> and I've, uh, I've been, I've spent a lot of time in Latin America doing journalism. I've never actually been to the Islamic world. I uh, definitely want very much, it's kind of on my bucket list, is to set foot in North Africa or the Middle East, before I leave my mortal coil. But also, over the course of these past uh, 20 years, I've been going back and forth uh, pretty regularly to um, the South America, doing reportage on um, campesino struggles in Colombia, 
Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, etc., and indigenous struggles. So a lot of that kind of material was also appearing. And uh, in 2005, when we changed the format, we also changed the name. I changed it to uh, World War Four Report, which <laughs> sounded even more um, extremist and <laughs> alarmist and esoteric and confusing, uh, I suppose. But uh, actually, I got that from... Uh, Again, other commentators, just like, I, you know, it was sort of a Thomas Friedman, who I don't like, sort of inspired me to call it um, World War III Report. Some other people who I don't like, and also some people who I do like, um, inspired me to change the name to World War IV Report. One is that, you know, a lot of the neocons started um, referring to the GWAT, the Global War on Terrorism, as World War IV including um, Norman Podharitz and uh, James Woolsey, if you consider him a neocon exactly, the, uh, then the director of the CIA, and a top advocate of the invasion of Iraq, uh, they started calling the, the GWAT World War IV on the logic that um, the Cold War itself had been World War III. Even though the U.S. and the Soviet Union never directly went to war with each other, it was still a global struggle which, you know, marshaled resources and on a tremendous scale and, uh, you know, um, saw the waging of proxy wars all over the world, you know, from Vietnam and Korea to um, Nicaragua and El Salvador. And interestingly, this was also taken up, the notion that we were in a fourth world war by uh, one of my heroes, Subcommander Marcos, of the uh, Zapatista Army of National Liberation, EZLN, in Mexico's southern state of Chiapas. He'd actually been using that phrase, Fourth World War, for, um, for some time, even before, going back to before 9-11. And for him, I think there was also a, uh, an implicit reference there to what's been called the Fourth World which are um, uh, indigenous, stateless, and land-rooted peoples and ethnicities who are, you know, outside the uh, outdated division of the, uh, you know, first, second, and third worlds. Of course, you know, that math doesn't quite work anymore since there isn't exactly a second world anymore. That was the communist bloc, which no longer exists. But once again, the world is being divided up into, um, you know, into rival camps. Maybe you could argue that um, even though it is no longer communist. Maybe you could argue that um, a second world is beginning to reemerge, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Certainly, and I'll have more to say about that later on in this rant as I continue to uh, you know, bring the, the chronology up to the present day, but certainly we are no longer in the era of seamless globalization, which uh, you know, led the hubristic uh, Francis Fukuyama to um, declare after the end of the Cold War that... Uh, we had reached the end of history. Boy, did that ever turn out to be a <laughs> famous last words, shall we say, although he's still alive. <clears throat> There's certainly been an awful lot of history since he wrote that book back in 1991 or whatever it was. So uh, we changed the name to, uh, you know, World War Four Report. And then I guess the most uh, significant change after that is, uh, you know, that uh, we jump forward to 2016. And uh, in light of our um, expanding areas of coverage beyond the original mandate of the global war on terrorism, 
and to try to emphasize uh, resistance and positive alternatives to the deepening dystopia, we changed the name to the name which it still has today, Counter Vortex, with a, a kicker of resisting humanity's downward spiral. Initially, it was a World War III report deconstructing the war on terrorism. And then after Obama was elected uh, and he stopped using the, the rhetoric of the GWAT, uh, it was a um, World War IV report deconstructing overseas contingency operations, which was <laughs> Obama's uh, you know, antiseptic and euphemistic replacement nomenclature for what Bush had called the global war on terrorism. And then it uh, became what it remains today, counter-vortex, resisting humanity's downward spiral. And the idea is that, uh, you know, the planet is spiraling into a... I'll have more to say about this in a um, in a future podcast, you know, elaborating on, again, what this seemingly um, very uh, confusing and esoteric name actually means. It's the notion that the planet is spiraling into a vortex of ecological collapse, permanent war, and totalitarianism, whether of the uh, techno-security state, which is advancing with um, terrifying rapidity, or the uh, religious and ethnic fundamentalisms that ostensibly oppose it. Through our resistance, we generate a counter-vortex, which is generating movement away from those things and towards sustainability, peace, and popular democracy. And while I still dare to dream, you know, still remaining after all these years an anarchist at heart, I still dare to dream that, you know, one day there can actually be a revolution and we're going to um, overthrow capitalism and the state worldwide. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, I also recognize that the uh, you know tendency of leftists, and radical leftists, to uh, you know fetishize some future revolution um, has uh, you know contributed to their irrelevance and ineffectiveness. And really, you know, I want I want to um, you know emphasize civil resistance once again. That same phrase, you know, here in the United States, in New York City, in the West, as well as the rest of the world, in the here and now. And, uh, you know, 2016 was also, of course, the year that the uh, same year changed the name to the, the, the name that the project currently has, Counter Vortex, was also the year that Donald Trump was elected. And certainly uh, this very much heightened the contradictions facing American society in the world, that's for sure. And uh, it's kind of a paradox that despite his, you know, isolationist rhetoric and actually cutting a deal with the Taliban, which ultimately resulted in, the, in Afghanistan being turned back over to the Taliban again. You know, Trump's rhetoric was again returning to the more, uh, you know, bellicose stance of the, um, of the W. Bush administration with the enemy in the, you know, GWAT now, you know, being explicitly, or then when he was elected, explicitly identified as, quote, radical Islamic terrorism, unquote. But the, uh, you know, the GWAT, the global war on terrorism, it was certainly by this point, was no longer the, um, you know, hegemonic paradigm for the, uh, you know, worldwide struggle as it had been, say, for the first decade or so following 9-11. And, 
you know, initially after the end of the Cold War, there had sort of been, you know, all of this triumphalism about how, uh, you know, capitalism reigns worldwide and it's a single globalized world, you know, one seamlessly integrated capitalist system worldwide. Well, since then, uh, you know, over particularly over the course of the past 10 years, you know, new imperial rivalries have begun to emerge. New, uh, you know, rifts in the in the global system have begun to uh, to, to reemerge, and that now they aren't so ideological as they were back in you know back in the old Cold War. But uh, you know, with Russia's recovery as a superpower, and uh, the U.S. embarking on a new Cold War with China, the potential has um, again emerged for a you know World War Three scenario. Unfortunately. Which I, you know, again, in my uh, esoteric nomenclature, I would consider that to be World War V. I mean, if it ever actually does turn into a direct shooting war between uh, the United States and, uh, and either Russia or China, possibilities which unfortunately are not to be dismissed, I would consider that to be World War V. If, uh, you know, we're going to say that the Cold War was World War III and the, the GWAT was World War IV, that would be World War V. And certainly there's, uh, you know, in terms of you know, the um, <clears throat> official rhetoric as to who the enemy is, you know, there was actually Obama who began the so-called tilt to Asia, recognizing China as, uh, you know, uh, the imperial rival. And, you know, this unfortunate tendency towards what has been called campism is, you know, once again emerging in the, uh, in, in, in the American left and, and, the, and the, the, the left, if you can still call it the left, in, in the West generally. Despite the fact that, you know, Russia is, does not even call itself communist anymore, and China still calls itself communist, but is thoroughly capitalist to the core. But again, I'll have more to say about this later. You know, too many <laughs> so-called anti-war activists have found it, uh, you know, necessary to rally around the rival imperial powers and to, you know, downplay, you know... <clears throat> The all too real abuses which they are committing, whether it is you know Russia's massive bombardment of Syria, or the uh, you know the mass detention of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So uh, just as we did, we getting back to my project Counter Vortex, using the editorial we, you know, advanced a kind of a neither nor position vis-a-vis -vis the the GWAT, where you know we opposed U.S. imperialism, but we also opposed political Islam, Islamic fundamentalism, whatever you want to call it, we're similarly advancing or um, attempting to advance a neither-nor position vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and its imperial rivals. And we assert that acceptance of a multipolar world, <clears throat> as opposed to the uh, you know unipolar world of the immediate post-Cold War era, must necessarily imply a critique of the other poles of rising Russian and Chinese imperialism, as well as declining U.S. imperialism. Now, even with uh, the U.S. declining and Russia and China rising, yes, they still have a long way to go to catch up with the United States in terms of its military reach, global military reach, quite obviously. But, you know, I will point out that... Uh, while both the United States and Russia have committed war crimes in Syria over the course of the past 10 years, you know, Russia destroying the city of Aleppo with aerial bombardment, 
and the United States destroying the city of Raqqa through aerial bombardment. It also has to be said that, you know, Russia in that particular war has been the more aggressive party, which has committed more and greater war crimes. Not that that lets anybody off the hook for anything. But there is this tendency among, uh, you know, lefties to try to whitewash, you know, Putin and uh, Bashar Assad and so on, which I absolutely do not go along with. Which brings us to the present day, where in some ways, you know, this project that I've been working on for 20 years, you know, feels like an albatross around my neck. (laughs) I will confess, after all of these years, it is only now just beginning to monetize. And a part of what, you know, uh, propelled my obsession with the project was, uh, you know, that 9-11 happened and I launched this website just at about the same time that, you know, the uh, the world of print media, where I had been making a living, began its uh, radical contraction and became more and more difficult to um, <clears throat> to survive as a freelance writer. And I, you know, had been reduced to freelancing because, uh, you know, I lost my editorial position. I was news editor at High Times Magazine back in the 1990s. So, you know, I was looking uh, to counter Vortex, as I now call it, as, uh, you know, a project that fills sort of a, uh, fill a void in my life in terms of, uh, you know, a, uh, a consistent outlet for my um, creative energies or obsessions, and more optimistically as, uh, you know, a way of making a living so that I wouldn't have to sell my labor as a copy editor and whatnot, which I had to do intermittently over the years for a financial publication down on Wall Street. And of course, you know, it's a good thing I don't have to do that anymore <laughs> because that work is no longer available. That's a, a whole part of, you know, <clears throat> the decline of standards in journalism has been that, you know, copy editing and even, you know, editing and proofreading has just been, uh, you know, it's been virtually abandoned. It's considered optional today. So, you know, there really isn't that kind of work available anymore. And unfortunately, since then, uh, you know, my uh, writing career has recovered somewhat. I don't have a um, a staff position with, you know, an office and Benny's and everything like I had back in the 1990s. But I'm uh, <clears throat> making a living as a freelance writer with a certain degree of security and don't actually have to, uh, you know, sell my labor at an office job. But it's only now that finally Counter Vortex has started to monetize, largely through the podcast, which you are listening to at this precise moment. We've got 27 subscribers on Patreon. And I really appreciate all 27 of you guys and gals a whole lot, as well as, you know, the few stalwart supporters who have, you know, been, uh, you know, um, supporting my efforts from the very beginning 20 years ago. You know who you are. Big thank you to you guys and gals. But in terms of consistently bringing in a certain amount of money every month, it's only now, finally, that Counter Vortex is just beginning to monetize. Not that I can quit my day job. Of course, I don't have a day job. I actually have a night job as a freelance writer because my most creative hours are from midnight to dawn. That's when I get all my really good work done. But uh, so I can't quit my night job. And in any event, Counter Vortex would be my night job. Actually, now I'm trying to get my blogging done during the day. I'm trying to produce just one report a day on Counter Vortex and to get it done before dinner so that I can um, save my uh, most uh, creative hours after midnight for um, actual paid work. Um, 
And the deeper and longer stuff that I write, Counter Vortexes, I'm pretty much trying to, I produce one in-depth feature a month. Well, a minimum, I should say, a minimum of one in-depth feature a month, which is, you know, long-form serious journalism. But um, the daily work of Counter Vortexes, I'm producing one news blurb a day, which I'm generally trying to keep concise, partially because, uh, you know, there seems to be more of an audience for short news blurbs than for long, in-depth analyses. But I recognize that, uh, you know, a part of what is continuing to hold us back in terms of, uh, you know, building an audience is that, uh, you know, I persistently have this uh, need to, to play the gadfly and to, uh, and to be what I, what I call an ultra-dissident. Not only a dissident from, you know, the mainstream or legacy media, and what we might call, you know, the consensus narrative about world affairs, although that consensus has definitely been breaking down as things have started to get more polarized in recent years, but also a dissident from, from the dissidents, a dissident from the left, a dissident within the left, I hope, in the spirit of uh, another one of my heroes, George Orwell. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that doesn't win me a lot of friends, because I always feel like it's my responsibility to tell people what they don't want to hear and to bring uh, uncomfortable truths to light. And the way, unfortunately, you make a, um, make a successful website and um, gain followers, gain a widespread following, is by telling people what they want to hear, is by targeting a particular audience and entrenching their groupthink or consensus or narrative or whatever you want to call it, as opposed to trying to shake it up and, uh, you know, a related obstacle has been uh, the lack of so-called institutional backing for this project. Because, you know, on one hand, you've got like the more liberal NGO left, if you can exactly call it the left, which, you know, gets money from the likes of George Soros. And then you've got the more um, purportedly radical, although I would take issue with that, and campist left, if you can call it a left exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which, um, you know, is supported by Vladimir Putin, quite frankly, you know. I mean, all of these uh, commentators of, uh, you know, who are perceived to be on the left, from, you know, Chris Hedges to uh, Julian Assange to uh, Lee Camp, to my particular nemesis, Max Blumenthal, are all given a mouthpiece by RT, you know, Russia Today, which is, you know, a direct organ of Kremlin state propaganda. And... You know, <laughs> And ironically, RT actually did try to recruit me. I think it was last year or the year before that. They actually contacted one of their editors, contacted me by email. I would imagine, after having done a rather cursory review of my website and just decided that, you know, I was um, a lefty, which of course I am, and not happened to notice <laughs> that I'm like, you know, a very, very harsh critic of, um, of uh, Vladimir Putin and Russian imperialism and authoritarianism. Or maybe they thought that I would sell out and that their effort to, uh, you know, uh, to recruit me was actually an effort to, uh, an attempt to domesticate me. But in any event, I told them to go to hell. So here we are, you know, Counter Vortex continues to be an ultra-dissident voice with a small but dedicated readership and virtually no institutional backing. And uh, 27 Patreon subscribers. I'm hoping that uh, maybe this podcast will jack it up to 28 or 29. 
I ask just uh, one do- a minimum of $1 per weekly podcast, so $4 a month. Make it $2, and uh, you know, under the special deal which we're offering, you get to uh, choose a topic that I will rant about on the podcast. And the podcast itself, I should point out, sort of being a replacement for uh, my radio show on WBAI, which I produced for 20 years here in New York City. And uh, once again, I was purged from the airwaves for uh, telling uncomfortable truths and for opposing the 9-11 conspiracy mongering and uh, health quackery, which they had been promoting, and being an ultra-dissident. That was uh, just 10 years ago this past March. Ides of March 2011 was the day I lost my radio show. But, uh, well, now I'm, you know, I'm podcasting like everybody else and his uncle. And, uh, you know, I, uh, the only thing which has really gotten me through and made me stick with this project for um, the past 20 years is the notion of quality before quantity and the notion that even if it's a, um, a small audience, it's a more intelligent audience and a more progressive audience. And above all, you know, I mean, intelligent can sort of be a pretentious word, but a more intellectually serious audience. I don't mean an audience which is necessarily more um, sophisticated in terms of book learning, but a more intellectually serious audience in the sense of being unafraid of having their assumptions challenged, and in fact, viewing it as intellectually salubrious to have your assumptions challenged rather than to have them merely entrenched. So Counter Vortex continues to exist after 20 years, after various iterations and incarnations and names, continues to exist as a uh, daily news service and digest and an ongoing commentary on the news serving as an ombudsman on um, sloppy reportage and bad politics, covering little-covered conflicts and wars going on all over the planet, and trying to find, uh, you know, um, voices and political forces that we can support on the ground, pro-democratic, anti-authoritarian, secular, progressive, indigenous, and anarchist, or at least dissident left, forces on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Burma and Ethiopia and Colombia and all the various countries around the world, where we're trying to bring a uh, unique and critical eye. <clears throat> so I guess this has been kind of a, uh, you know, a self-indulgent um, meta discussion, as it were, where Counter Vortex is examining itself but I just sort of felt the need to do it on the 20th anniversary of this project, which you can check out online at uh, countervortex.org. Once again, updated every day. I guarantee that you will um, learn about conflicts in various places around the world that you never knew existed, and that no matter what your political persuasion is, even my fellow anarchists are going to um, have your political assumptions challenged by what I have to say. I've actually returned in recent years to sending out a weekly emailing, which is just a, uh, you know, an email with uh, the headlines and links for all the stories that I've done in a particular week. So usually it's about seven stories, sometimes more if I've posted a feature. 
and the occasional link from uh, my sibling websites, because Counter Vortex is my flagship websites. I've got some other websites as well, most notably Global Ganja Report. Another area of expertise of mine is an uh, area of concentration as a journalist is writing about cannabis. <clears throat> Certainly an area where there's been an awful lot to report on recently. But if you want to uh, subscribe to that email, you want to get onto that email list, and I promise you we only send out one mailing per week. Just go to countervortex.org and click where it says subscribe. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> I sure would appreciate some uh, feedback from whoever is listening to this about this project that I've been working on for the past 20 years, which has consumed all too much of my life. And even if you disagree with things that I have to say, and agreeing with me is not mandatory. <laughs> what, what, what I consider mandatory is that you actually hear what I have to say and grapple with it and think about it and respond honestly. But even if you disagree with what I have to say, I would like to hear from followers of uh, Counter Vortex who at least get what it is that we do. And uh, while I'm giving out, uh, you know, shout outs and props to collaborators, of course, I've got to uh, give big hearty thanks to uh, my current technical guru, Chris Rywalt, who um, rescued this project from doom after the website crashed around uh, five years ago. And I had actually thought that I had lost all of the data on it and um, actually paid experts a lot of money who then failed to recover the website. And uh, Chris came forward and, um, and had the, the secret mojo. He actually recovered every last syllable. I didn't lose a single word. Absolutely amazing. And did it out of the goodness of his heart. Wouldn't even take any money. And uh, about uh, going on two years ago, he redesigned the website. So it's a lot more... Um, visually stimulating than it used to be. And it's much, it's got, it's much, we're getting in, finally getting in tune with the zeitgeist and not being, you know, uh, you know, pages full of print, but actually having some uh, visual razzle and dazzle finally starting to enter the 21st century here. So um, big thanks to my uh, current collaborator and enabler, Chris Rywalt. So uh, once again, Please check out our um, shiny new website, new graphically exciting website with um, shorter and more digestible stories, which I hope are still um, informative, not merely replicating what other left websites out there are saying, covering conflicts around the world, which are off the radar screen, not only of the mainstream media, but also of the alternative media and is intellectually challenging, not, I hasten to emphasize, in the uh, you know, sense of having to uh, you know, run to your dictionary to figure out what the hell I'm talking about, because I do strive to be uh, clear and concise, but intellectually challenging in the sense of um, you know, shaking up entrenched assumptions and making people think. Once again, if you get what we're doing here at the Counter Vortex, please be in touch. I'd love to hear from you, even if you've got criticisms. I mean that. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex on its 20th anniversary. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance.
and rant on you next time.